0: Hey, listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support
1: the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com/slash Xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode.
2: Welcome to X Chateau,
1: Chateau. the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young.
0: Welcome to this episode of Ex Chateau. Today, we are discussing the benefits of selling through La Place de Bordeaux for non-Bordeaux lay wines. And today, our guests are Rebecca Weinberg, the winemaker at Quintessa, and Diego Garay, the director of exports for Quintessa. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Robert, Peter. It's wonderful to be here. Thank
3: you for having us, guys.
0: So I was wondering if you could each give us a brief overview of your backgrounds and how you got into wine. Maybe we'll start with you, Rebecca.
2: Okay. So I have been working in wine my entire adult life. I got the idea of becoming a winemaker when I was 16 years old and uh, pursued that after uh, graduating from undergrad. So I went to UC Davis. I got my master's degree there and I worked in Italy and New Zealand and Australia, but mainly on the West Coast of the US, so mainly in California. And I have been living and working in Napa for 18 years now.
0: And how long have you been at Quintessa?
2: I have been at Quintessa for seven years.
0: And Diego, how about yourself?
3: Uh, for me, I've been in the wine business for approximately 20 years. I worked before for a winery which probably you're, you know very well. Like it's called Seña. It's a former young venture between Robert Montavi and Eduardo Tadwick. Before that, I was working for Viva, which is a young venture from Muton Rothschild and Contitoro in Chile. So, those two wines have been selling and exporting like 98, 99% of their, their production. So I've been working pretty much all my career in the export business because of that.
1: So you're an expert at collaborations.
3: <laughs> Pretty
1: much, yes. So, to give us a little context on exporting and on Quintessa in general, we know Quintessa is a high end estate winery in Napa Valley in the Rutherford region owned by the Huneus family. Maybe, Rebecca, you you might inform our audience how much wine does Quintessa make? How much is exported? What are the biggest markets?
2: So yes, Quintessa is an estate winery located in Rutherford. When we are at full production, we have about 160 acres of vineyard planted. Of course, making selections for quality, we only make one red wine called Quintessa. We have been producing about eight to 12,000 cases per year. And up until fairly recently, this has all been in the domestic market. We work both with direct-to-consumer and with wholesale and have pretty strong relationships in both. So it's about a 50-50 split there.
1: And then maybe Diego, you can help us understand where does the export market play into Quintessa's overall strategy and you know how much is going export, maybe now and in the future?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean we are right now exporting between five to fifteen percent of their production. It will depend of course on on the vintage. The main market, of course, is France, uh, we're selling to Laplace like uh, 99% of that. But of course, I mean, from France, the main export markets right now are in Asia, the UK, Germany, and Switzerland as well.
0: So I am curious on what are the key goals of exporting the wine? Because obviously, given your production levels, I'm assuming you can be satiated by domestic demand
3: yeah,
2: that's a good question. So you're right. It wasn't because we had more production than we had demand. It's actually been a very conscious decision. Quintessa was founded by Augustine Valeria Junnas with the idea and the belief that this property has the potential to be a great wine estate. And in order to be a great wine estate, you actually need to be out in the world. And so, after thirty years of producing wine and, and building our reputation and, and selling wine domestically, we wanted to take that next step and really be out in the world. So needed to figure out how to do that. And that's where Diego came in. <laughs> we had been exporting not even 1% probably prior to.
3: It was like around like 1%, just like a few markets. I mean, before Laplace, we were like selling a little bit in Canada, a little bit in Japan, Mexico, but it was not a priority for the family. I mean, the whole business has been established in the US. I think the main reason and the goal for doing the exports is like a, to gain image. Like a, we want to become a, um, a global wine state, and you cannot become a global wine state if you're not present in London, in Tokyo, in Hong Kong, etc. I mean, you cannot be like just a domestic brand if you want to be a global state. So that, I think, is the main goal and the main reason why we are expanding our exports.
0: Diego, just a point of clarification: Are you the director of exports for just the Quintessa or the whole Junius Vintners Group?
3: I'm for the whole Junius, Yeah, but like, of course, my main role is on Quintessa. That's a priority, of course, for the family. But we keep separated distribution systems. I mean, for Quintessa, that's the only wine we're doing through La Paz, and for the rest of the wineries, we're doing under a traditional wine importer uh, system.
0: Got it. I mean, obviously, Quintessa has the kind of like high-end flagship, but you have other brands in that group for like Faust and Flowers. And I'm curious, on: are you trying to use that? Is it part of the strategy as a as the group to basically put Quintess in there and then eventually let that segue to other wines following that same route?
3: I don't think so. I'm like, uh, It's not for every brand. It's not for every wine. You need to have certain pedigree, high-end scores. I'm not saying that Faust or Flowers don't have that. But I think in the case of Quintessa, for example, it's a state, it's a chateau model, which adapts very well comparing with the other chateau wines that are traded in, in Bordeaux. So it makes more sense for us, I mean, to only work with Tessa and Laplace and the rest of the wineries going through a traditional wine importer system.
2: We first, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Diego, but I, the first kind of inkling of this, of going on to Laplace, was when one of the Negociants, Cru et Domaine, reached out to us. They were looking for new world wines, I guess you call it. And they reached out to us to start that conversation. So that was kind of that that first little step into this entire system. Exactly.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, that I guess plays into when did Quintessa first start selling wine via Laplace?
3: Uh, We started in 2019 with the launching of the 2016. I arrived also in 2019. So like a that was my mission, of course, I mean, to put Quintessa in, in La Paz. So we started that year and, uh, yeah, it was a very successful. We were working with just a very limited number of negotiations. And the amount, the number of cases that we placed on that first campaign was very small. So we targeted which market we want to reach with them and all that. So and then campaign, vintage after vintage, we've been growing and it's doing quite well.
1: So for those who aren't that familiar, could you maybe give us a brief overview of what Laplace de Bordeaux is and what it does?
3: Oh, We can go for ages for that because it's a very, very old uh, distribution system. But in a nutshell, it's basically a marketplace where most of the Bordeaux wines are traded. A lot of them are traded as futures via the Negociants. It's a system that has been working hundreds of years in, in Bordeaux, and it's a... Complex three-tier system where chateaus only sell to negociants, and negociants will sell to the international trade.
1: And you mentioned that there's some um, like criteria to be traded on Laplace. Could you maybe elaborate on what some of the that criteria is?
3: I think mean, you need to have certain pedigree, high scores. Uh, it's not a system that is suitable for all of the wines. It also, I I think you need to be known by the international consumers because you will need to build the demand for the negociants. The negociants are not brand builders. So you will need to put all the investment, you will need to be in the market. Rebecca knows very well how many events, virtual events uh, during COVID we have done. So there's a lot of investment you have to do. And again, you have to do it 100% by yourself without the help of an importer in the market.
1: So given that Laplace is like a broad network of merchants, as a winery, not in Bordeaux, how do they think about starting to engage and sell through there? You said one of the negotiants approached you, but if that wasn't the case, how would someone winery think of even engaging in that marketplace?
3: I think you have to understand the system very well before making a decision and before you're going to knock on the door of the negotiants. You have to know all the strengths, all the weakness of the system. You have to know it will take a lot of time and resources. And again, I think that that will be like my recommendation. It's not for every single wine. And again, also you have to understand also that most of the newer wines have been just for 15, 20 years in La Paz. So it's a system completely new for these wines. So that makes it also very difficult for both, for the producer, and for the negotiant.
1: But there's no like contact me page for Laplace, right? <laughs> like no. No. Email or phone call to, to call. Like where would you even begin to find out information or see if, you know, my wine was suitable for that?
3: Well, you have to know the, which are the players, which are the negociants that are selling those uh, newer wines. Another way of doing it will be through a courtier there's like some courtiers that are specializing in your wines I mean, that will be like the easy track to do it. But again, that system also has its, its pros and, and cons.
2: And Peter, it's a, you know, speaking as the person who's worked her, probably her entire career selling wine only domestically, it's a very different system than our domestic wholesale system. And it's been really interesting to learn about it. It's, it isn't that you just, like, look up who the people are, because there's so many players, um, the negotiants, and you have to know them and they have to know you. So it's kind of a, I don't know, like a shoulder tap, um, almost, you know, so I don't know if, if somebody is interested in being a part of it. I think they have to do years of work in, in making those relationships first before they're even considered What do you think,
3: Diego? Yeah, and it's hard for me. I mean, like uh, to to give a recommendation doing that because I've known them for 20 years. So I know which negotiants are working in which markets, which are the best for certain brands, etc. So it it depends. It depends, and it's hard, I mean, to give like a like straightforward recommendation.
0: So you mentioned the brand building component as some of the rationale, but I'm curious on other benefits you've seen of selling through Laplace for Quintessa?
2: It's been pretty incredible. You know, as Diego said it, they are not brand builders. They do not do that. That is all up to you. But it has, for me personally, and I think for Quintessa, it has been even more than we expected. So getting onto it, just thinking like, oh, we're going to have our wine on the international stage. It's been really interesting to present Quintessa to a market that doesn't already know Quintessa and doesn't necessarily know Napa even. And so personally, it's made me think very differently about how I communicate. I think it's made a much stronger communication. Diego has set up millions of these Zoom presentations as we're launching Quintessa. Realized pretty early on, I was starting with like, oh, we're in Rutherford and talking about that and realizing that no, I needed to back up, not just to Napa. <laughs> I started with a picture of California and then to Napa. You know, it, it makes me, as a winemaker, I think it's powerful because it makes me un- really understand the context of where I am in relation to the world of wine. So, not just how my wine tastes, but how, how am I thinking about my place? And, and that's made for a much stronger communication. And then also to see the reaction of, these international consumers or international trade really is who I've talked to. Most to Quintessa has been really interesting. So they really gravitate and understand the Chateau model that we have. And the, the Napa consumer, I don't think we've talked about that as much. That hasn't been something that has been what Napa has been about, I guess.
3: Yeah, uh, I think also the benefit has been... Basically, to be able to reach an extensive uh, high-end distribution in a short period of time, as I mentioned before. I mean, right now, after three years, we have presence in more than 50 countries. So, of course, I mean when we're in the goal of building a global brand, and that's been very beneficial for us, of course.
0: So I am curious on now, it's been a couple of years, a couple of vintages have gone through Laplace. Like how has the demand changed over time? You said you initially started with a very small Allocation with the twenty sixteen vintage, we're now on the twenty nineteen vintage, right? In terms of being released, like how has that demand changed over those three vintages for the label?
3: It's been growing. Part of the success has been all the number of marketing actions, some tasting, presenting the brand abroad. The demand is growing, and right now we are in a very in a good problem. I mean that we have a more demand than supply. So for the next 2019 vintage, I mean, we're going to have to allocate the wine to our negociants, so we're in a very good positions.
0: So just to clarify, is it growing because you're increasing the number of merchants you're working with, or is it growing because the merchants you're working with are asking for more wine? They're asking for more
3: wine. I mean, we have stick from the very beginning, we stick to a number of negociants. And we haven't changed that.
0: Just as a reference, like how many merchants or negotiators are you working with or do you think is your target to work with
3: for contest? Well, wow, there is more than 400 negotiators right. in Laplace. So it's uh, an extensive number. In our case, we're working with less than 10. We work directly without a courtier. And again, depending on the volumes you want to release, depending on the goals you have, it will be the number of that you will be picking up to work with.
0: And so Rebecca, you covered a little bit about in terms of like how much marketing you're working with in terms of, because these are not end consumers, they're not necessarily retail, like they're they're people that get your wine into another location. How much, you talked about the education aspect, but how much in terms of explaining not only what Quintessa is about, but also maybe differentiating from other things that are other new world wines that are in the market, how much of that is part of work in terms of marketing in channel?
2: There's a lot of that. So it is, I've realized the perception of Napa or the perception of our wines in the international market is sometimes they have no perception, no like reality. Sometimes they have, you know, they think that we're all very oaky, very alcoholic, very big, big, big kind of that perception. And so it's, there has been a lot of education to explain what makes Quintessa unique. And I think that the response, the positive response that we've seen is because what makes us unique is our terroir is our place. And that is, Something that we have studied quite closely and something that we can communicate well and and shows in the wine. is transparent in the wine. And because they have Bordeaux as their main reference, that makes sense to them. So it's not, Quintessa is not so much a brand as it is a place or a Chateau um, that works. So since we haven't been able to travel because of COVID, it has been mostly trade. Right before COVID hit, I did get the opportunity to go to Asia with Diego and did do some consumer visits as well. And that was incredible.
0: And how important is showing back that the wines can age and, are, and how they develop? Obviously, you've been there for seven years. There was other winemakers before you. Every time you have a new wine, there's a little bit of a stylistic difference. I'm curious on how is showing, is that an important part of the process? Show like, hey, these wines are, have, have a long life ahead of them. Is that important for Laplace merchants?
2: Oh, yes, of course. I mean, you need to show that you have history, that the wine itself has longevity, and particularly they are used to drinking older wines and seeing that. And so we have shared a lot of library vintages. I wish we had more that we could actually even release onto the market, but we haven't. We can't make wine from the past anymore, <laughs> but it's showing the evolution of the estate itself, how the wine ages is part of the communication because they're not in it just to do a one-off.
0: One of the things, uh, Diego, this is more for you in terms of talking about all your experience with Eduardo Chadwick. And as he was putting premier you know, Chilean wines on the world stage, he was doing a lot of blind tastings with, in company of these top first gross and top Bulgaria estates. And I'm curious, is that a tactic that has already been, already been well-established and already been like, you don't need to do that? Or is that something that even in Quintessa, you guys are kind of putting your wines out there with other wines of the world to show the pedigree and benchmark of the wines? Is that a tactic that you guys are using?
3: To be honest, I mean, we're not doing a Quintessa. We studied a lot with Eduardo uh, Talu with Senia. But here, I mean, we prefer to show the wine by itself. First of all, in the markets where California is not well known, put California place, then getting more specific on the different appellations and, and talking about Rutherford. Personally, I don't like to be compared to other states. I mean, it's Bali for some of them, but I prefer the wine to stand by itself. And that's what we've been doing since I started Quintessa.
0: In terms of the economics of working with Laplace versus working with an in-market importer, obviously if you chose an importer to work directly in France or directly in Germany. How would you see the cost benefit in terms of what does it mean to your, either your margins that you're getting or, or their actual prices that are being charged? Is that considerably different or are they very similar?
3: I mean, it's a bit different uh, than a one market, one import system, but at the same time, very similar than what you see here in the U.S. The Negrosan system is also a three-tier system, so margins and prices are very similar than what we see here. Having said that, the negotiation system is a non-exclusive system. That means that there's a way more competitions, there are way more importers in one market selling the, the same wine. So in general, margins are going to be a little bit lower than you can see here. But overall, I mean, we try to keep our prices in line with the U.S. I mean, like the, the same price you see here in the U.S., you will find it in the, in the rest of the market. So that's how we build our price strategy.
0: So if the margins are lower, what is the overall like key benefit that you're getting that you wouldn't get from like a really strong importer? Like is it just economy of scale because you're gonna get access to more markets? Or what is that key? Like, what's the rationale?
3: The margins are lower for the trade, for the importers, but but not for us overall. I mean, like the margins that we keep here in the US are basically the same on doing it through the negotiation system. Okay. And Diego, you
2: mentioned, and I've heard you say this before, like the Power of Laplace is the efficiency yeah. of the system. Yeah,
3: they're good distributors. I mean, like uh, the very good distributors. They've been doing that for hundreds of years. They've been exclusive uh, distributors of the first growth of Bordeaux. So their network—it's really, really impressive. The, the clients' network is very impressive. It's super high end because, of course, the portfolio they're selling. So yeah, I mean, being sold alongside those first growth or top wines from the world. It's an important asset and a great benefit for us.
1: So then what are some of the downsides or trade-offs of selling through Laplace?
3: Well, there's, I guess, some... First of all, I think we mentioned before that you have to do all the investment. Negocios are not brand builders, so you will need to make sure that you will need to Build the demand for them. It's a non-exclusive system as well. So in some markets, you will find a lot of competition for the same wine. You could see also some discounting. So you have to be controlling that as well.
2: Well, I would say logistics. I don't know if that's a weakness, but like from my side, like we have to, we send the wine to Bordeaux, to a warehouse there to be distributed from there. It's scheduling that, organizing that.
3: Yeah.
1: So it goes to Bordeaux and then goes to Asia or Africa or potentially even back to the U.S. potentially.
3: Not in the U.S. because I mean we prohibited the sales in the U.S., so it won't be back here. And we are—that's part of our job—to be controlling that Negocents will be not reselling in the U.S. market. But in terms of logistics, I think Rebecca, it's—I think it's the opposite. It's more efficient because we have to ship once a year to a our warehouse in Bordeaux. And then the mm-hmm. negociants, they will be in charge with their clients of shipping internationally all over the world. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And you said you have like nine or ten negotiants you work with, I believe. That. And 50 markets. So do you have any control or influence over which markets they sell to or even which accounts they sell to? Like, let's say you wanted to be in Michelin star restaurants or something like that. Can you yeah, that, sort of influence that?
3: Yeah, that is a weakness that I didn't mention. Like a kind of lose control of your distribution, but that's my job. I need to try to guide the distribution where they will be selling. I know which negotiations are more strong in which countries, so I try to guide them. And also try to receive uh, information, the depletion report, like uh, twice a year, in some cases, three times a year. That is a difficult job because you have to understand also that the most important asset, the most valuable asset for the negociants is their network of clients. So for them to share that, it can be a little bit tricky. So you have to build the confidence of them in order to get that information.
1: And as you mentioned, you're going to have to start allocating the wine. Can that allocation be used to help guide them in terms of which you know, accounts or types of markets that they'll sell to?
3: Exactly, exactly.
1: Great. But, and it's only annual commitments, right? You're not having contracts for people for multiple years?
3: It's a once-a-year release.
1: Okay. And then you mentioned, so nine or ten negotiants. these are people who focus on selling New World Wine. Are there more out of the 400 that also sell New World Wine? Or these you, you try to get all of them?
3: No, I, I select the ones that will be the best for Quintessa. Knowing each of them, I know which one of them will work good in the UK, in Japan, in Thailand, etc. But of course, there are many other negociants that are open to new world wines.
1: And as the number of new world wines or even just non Bordeaux wines <laughs> are exploding on the Laplace network, have you seen negotiants like maybe switch wineries frequently or like, you know, drop? allocations or pick up new brands or trade brands? How do you see that working as the number of non-Bordeaux brands grows?
3: Yeah, in the last year, I've seen negociants more open, of course, to pick up new wines from the new world. There is less political issues with Bordeaux Chateau owners. That's very important. That was not the case 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. But at the same time, I've seen wines that are not working for negociants and they're dropping them. So and then those runs for those runs have been it has been really difficult to come back in the international market. So that is also you need to have that in consideration. That is if you're not suitable for the Bordeaux system, they come back, it's it's really tough.
1: That's an interesting topic, I think. What are some of those key success factors or, or- key failure factors, I guess, for the ones that aren't working on the system? Is it because they're not doing enough marketing or their brand just isn't mature enough? Why do you think some brands don't work in the
3: system? Well, overall, because I think they don't work for NegoSounds and they don't have demand. And and since they're not brand builders, they're not going to do the effort on building the demand for them. So after a couple of years, they will drop them from their distribution. So again, you have to be very conscious. You have to know the system very well before making their decision.
0: So maybe in terms of commitment that you guys have done to help market the wines for these negotiations, maybe we can get a couple examples of what it was and how much time it takes. Because I think that that's, when we say marketing, it can kind of be hand wavy and getting a little bit more specific. Like what is the commitments that you'd have to do for, to expand into these global markets that you wouldn't have had to do if you were just stayed 100% domestic?
3: Rebecca, maybe you can help me with that because you've been okay. very much involved in all the <laughs> in all our marketing. and
2: Yeah, so we know what I've been doing in the last couple of years is Diego has set up, through the Negociants, these training sessions, like tasting online, so Zoom t- tasting either with trade, so either be with an individual trade, so like a buyer or an entire group of people on the other end of the screen. We have done a lot of media as well. So finding the local journalists, setting samples, having interviews, so doing PR work in these countries with people who know the players. So this is not, this is very specialized and focused and it's not an American kind of expanding out there. So working with someone in Japan, working with someone in the UK who knows these people being more, you know, as an Apple producer, being more, involved in the international press as well. I think it's the same as building demand domestically. It's just harder because there's so many different countries and and regions to figure out and you're not physically there all the time.
0: And so as a winemaker, obviously there's a lot of that needs to happen in terms of building these uh, media relationships. (laughs) Do you have to have a PR firm in each country or do you have a global PR firm that helps you or do negotiants help you connect those dots for you?
2: I don't actually, I don't feel like the negotiants are doing that Diego has identified, say, like just two key areas that are going to make the most effort. Like you can't hit 50 countries. So UK press and Japan. Uh, we did Korea and Korea. Did we do Hong Kong press? We did Hong Kong last year. yeah. Yeah.
3: But it's been difficult with uh, Hong Kong and China. It's yeah. been difficult with the lockdown. So like uh, we're right now focusing on those uh, three, three markets.
1: And do you have a PR firm for each of those countries? You mentioned you needed to have an in in market person.
3: And a translator.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you do have a a separate firm for each country?
3: Yes, we do have a PR. Yeah, we do have a PR company for each market.
1: Okay, cool. So you mentioned that you try to make the price equivalent across all countries. Of the world are similar to what the wine is priced at at the U.S. What are the buyers' expectations of that price? When you know Laplace has traditionally been selling Bordeaux, so do they have any kind of sticker shock or any kind of expectation when they see? you know, a Napa wine versus a Bordeaux wine or other wines on their network?
3: I mean, we we set the prices. So we set the, I mean, the recommended reselling prices from Bordeaux, the recommended retail prices for each market. And Negros have been doing this for non-Bordeaux wines for 15 years ago. They started with Almaviva back in 2002, then with Opus and then other wines. So they know the system, they know... The pros and cons of not respecting the pricing policy of each chateau. So, for us, that like we just started three years ago, and we're working with negociants that understand that system very well, we haven't had any issues.
1: So I know, especially for you know Sonoma Pinot Noir on the global stage, that is like a nothing or kind of like a what's that again, <laughs> right? Where is Sonoma? Because in the global stage for America, you really have Napa and that's it currently. So that's obviously yeah. changing over time or maybe maybe it's actively changing. Those maybe 10 years ago. But part of the issue, some of what we had in Sonoma was by the time wines land into Japan or other places, it's the price of Premier Cru or even Grand Cru Burgundy and people are like, well, I get my Grand Cru Burgundy, which has a you know global reputation, or this Sonoma Pinot Noir that I've never heard of before. Is that not a factor for Napa wines and for Quintessa?
2: Well, you're right. Napa has probably the best name recognition around the world, um, even though it's a small area. But what I've seen is that the actual understanding of what Napa is, what our wines are and what they taste like, is not there. In terms of like the price and the competition, you know, I actually think I haven't seen so much pushback on that. And if anything, when people taste Quintessa, they think and then they hear the story and they taste the wine, they find it. I mean, I don't want to use the term value, but that hasn't been a, a comment
3: about us. Um, uh, and I think Saloma wines right now are our value, if you compare it with Burgundy, I mean, like a, <laughs> right now, it's really, really, as you may know, like a, it's really hard to get Burgundy's prices are crazy right now. So I think consumers overall are looking for other regions and Sonoma being part of California next to Napa, I, I think will be an important region in the international markets in, in the future, for sure.
0: I am curious on maybe more for you, Rebecca. You mentioned dialing back and explaining California and kind of going in in terms of like placing it since we're talking about sense of place with Quintessa. But in terms of the actual wines and like what it will be to someone, especially when you can't do it and have the wines right in front of them at the exact same time, the same bottle that you're tasting with. And how have you had to change your communication style about like what these wines taste like? I'm obviously going from the US to UK. It's probably pretty straightforward. But then when you're talking to markets like in Korea and Japan, how do you make that make sense and resonate for someone? Because a lot of the flavor profiles, you know, like I was, gooseberries, like the, the classic example of a, of a note that like no one else outside of the UK really knows what it tastes like.
2: Right. So that has been fun. So Japan is different because Japan has, and it has a historical tight connection with US and Napa wines are prevalent there. The other countries, it has been newer. I have noticed, and even, you know, Diego will, will call me out on this. I realize I used a lot of terms that are not translatable. And my translator would be like, plush was one. I have not found <laughs> someone who can translate plush. Yeah. So, and this is where it's been so great for me personally, is to step back and to think about that, you know, like the words you're using, how you're describing the wine, is it it's contextual, but is it also universal? And are you being clear in that kind of communication? And so I, I have thought differently about how I'm talking about wine. For Quintessa, it isn't. It hasn't been a problem. It actually, it's very easy to talk about our place and relate that and and explain the or show the place through the way the wine tastes, and that people always get. Even if I have realized that translator gives me a look, it's like, no, I need another word. I can't use that. But plush is the one. And I don't know. I mean, if you guys offline, if you can give me the Chinese (laughs) translation for that, uh, that would be helpful. Um.
0: (laughs) Those words that uh, represent a feeling or like a like a weight are very complicated, I think, to translate in any language. Okay, interesting. And then I am curious, Diego, more for you in terms of so. Obviously, you said anywhere from five to fifteen percent is going internationally. What's yeah. the goal? Like, where do you, in ten years' time, you've set up everything. Where do you see Quintessa? What's a good target for you that has made all this work worthwhile in terms of percentage of total production that you would like to see going through to international markets?
3: Well, we will see. I mean, like uh, that's a challenge, of course. I mean, to to keep growing. And uh, right now, we're facing a lack of wine. You know, in 2020, we produced like a very, very small volume. So that will, we'll have to have that in consideration as well. But I think like around 30, 35%, that's a goal of the family in the international market. So we'll be able to grow year by year, hopefully.
2: I was going to add on to what Diego said is that it makes for a very stable like we call it the stool, like you've got a lot of legs, you've got the direct to consumer, you've got the domestic wholesale, and this is the third leg of that stool. And so we've seen that, you know, dif- recession hits, maybe it, it hits your direct to consumer more. I mean, the, different things affect different parts. And the more diversified you are, the stronger you are, the more secure you are in your systems.
1: Got it. So for other wineries thinking of selling through Laplace, what are the like, three key pieces of advice you'd give them?
3: Well, I think I'll have to repeat them again. You have to know to understand the system very well before making the decision. Knowing the strengths and the weakness beforehand that it will take a lot of time to do the right work, a lot of resources, and you'll need to build 100% the brand by yourself. And again, I think it's a system that only works for wines with certain pedigree, for high-scores wines, also for wines that are known by international consumers. We're very lucky that we've been receiving a lot of international visitors at the winery. And I knew beforehand, before I took the position, I knew that Puntesa was very well-known internationally, so that definitely helped, and, and that would be my, my advice. My general. Rebecca, what
0: about you? Would you have similar takeaways or anything from the winemaker side?
3: I mean, I I would just really reiterate how much
2: the resources that it takes. So the first you you have to be a wine that is that the negotiants that works on the system. And that's not every wine. And then I've seen a lot recently people here talking about, oh, maybe the you know, going on to the international market, going on to Laplace, like it's as if it's just another distributor. It was great. Diego explained the system at the beginning of this interview. And like, I need to hear that again and again, because I'm not sure I can explain it. It is different than what I have always dealt with, which is a distributor system where you have a exclusive relationship with one distributor and you work with them and they help you build your brand. And it's very clear. This is, uh, this doesn't sound right, but they're like middlemen. They're merchants. They are trading wine. And so it requires a, a level of sophistication in the management of that system, like from the winery side. We could not do this without Diego. And Diego comes with you know, 20 years of experience in this market. And it's incredibly different than the domestic wholesale market.
0: I just heard, don't do this unless you have Diego.
2: <laughs> <laughs> don't. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so
0: we want to wrap up. Uh, there's a lot of great information, and I think a lot of our listeners will love hearing about this because I think it's again something people have heard about but don't actually know how to do it or what it entails. So I think it's you know super insightful. But we do want to end on a personal note as uh, as we got to know you and hear about your business, and we want to wrap up on a personal note to figure out with each of you what was the most memorable wine you had in the last year and who did you drink it with.
2: Well, actually, we just had a great wine on Friday together. Um, that's a contender, but I actually think, so the most memorable in the last year was a 1976, uh, Mouton. It was wonderful because it's, you know, incredible chateau. It was open for a friend's birthday and to celebrate her engagement. So the people I was um, drinking it with is incredible and it is my birth year and I very rarely get to drink birth year wine. So it's also special.
3: In my case, um, unfortunately, I'm obsessed with champagne and Burgundy. Unfortunately, <laughs> not for your pocketbook, you mean. <laughs> uh, it's really, really hard, I mean, to, to be able to afford it and to drink the uh, Burgundy wines, but like the, I have to go to Burgundy when the last year, the most memorable wine was, I think, the Le Lamin, 2014. The Sanovan Premier Cru was amazing, great acidity, Creamy, so mineral, uh, and it's a wine that it can go for ages. Uh, I, I really love it; it was like stunning. I drank that over Christmas Eve with Rodrigo Soto, the CEO of uh, Quintessa, uh, Maya Russaries, our marketing manager, and it was awesome. just. Those Sound
0: like uh, great experiences. Uh, you know, Rebecca, you definitely have to have some uh, old German Riesling in the near future. It's a great vintage for uh, German Riesling. So, yes. uh, see yes. what I have left over next time I come up to Napa. Um, Well, thank you both for sharing all of your insights and your personal experiences around Laplace and, and what it means to Quintessa. Well, Thank you.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us guys. And don't forget, you can
0: become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau. If you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs.
1: Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe rate And give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.